11, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. They saw a calling upon Moses. They saw something in this child. They saw something unseen, literally. And they were not afraid of the king's command. They weren't afraid of Pharaoh. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, with the Hebrews in Goshen, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who touched and destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith they, Israel, passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, whereas the Egyptians, also attending the cross, were drowned. This is our third week in a series called Unseen. We're looking at faith. What is it? How does it work? What is the object of our faith? And what we're discovering is faith is a big deal. It's a big part of our journey, right? If I were to open a Bible and just read it from scratch, the first thing that would jump out to me is this dynamic of faith. And I don't think I'm overreaching by saying that faith may be the most important thing in the Bible. Now, I know Paul said in Corinthians, there abides three, faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest. And obviously, I agree with that. It's Scripture. Paul said, if you had the faith where you could move mountains, and it wasn't steeped in love, if love wasn't the ambition, he said, you're nothing. So I get that. But, but what about if love is the driver? What about if love is the motivation? Uh, so much that you and I do is by faith. We were all saved by faith. We walked by faith. We understand the deep things of God by faith. Remember verse 3? We understand that the very creation, the worlds, were framed by the word of God, so that the things that are seen... We're made of things that are invisible. We overcome by faith. We overcome sin. We, we walk through our journey. We please God by faith. He who comes to God, Hebrews eleven six, must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. And we're sustained through trials by faith. The writer of Hebrews goes back through the Old Testament. And remember why this chapter was written. The book of Hebrews was written to first century Christians, predominantly Jewish, who were now struggling with this new and living way, right? They had come out of Judaism. They're ostracized by their family. Uh, the heel of Rome is upon them. And while they're struggling, the temple is still running in all its glory, right? The sacrifices are going on. The feast days are going on. And, and they're kind of hitting the proverbial wall, right? They're, they're ready to throw in the towel. The Christian life is too hard. They're ready to give up. None of us have ever been there, right? No one's ever felt that way. And the writer now says, wait a second, there's a great cloud of witnesses. There's so many people that have gone before you. And he opens up their Bible. They didn't have a New Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And he begins to pick off these men and women of faith. Paul said all these things, the, the Holy Spirit selected these things, the New Testament, for our learning and our growing. These stories are here, warts and all, for you and I to grow upon whom the end of the ages has come. And it's almost like, okay, if they did it, we can do it. And we can man up, we can put our big boy pants on, and we can walk this walk of faith. This morning, we come to the faith of Moses. And Moses' story is an amazing story. He's not only the greatest leader in Israel, I could probably argue out he's the greatest leader of world history. 
This story extends from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy 34, which, by the way, he wrote. So this is the kind of man we're looking at. If you want a Cliff's Notes version of Moses' life, look at Acts 7, where Stephen, in his famous sermon, goes through and kind of fills in some of the gaps about Moses. If you're a note taker, Moses' life breaks down very simple. 40 years prince of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years delivering Israel, but back in the wilderness. We could spend easily four weeks on Moses. We're not going to do it, so we'll settle for four points. So strap in, we're going to go quick, okay? Point number one, his life begins by faith. This is often overlooked. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because he saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's command. Amram and Yoshebel were his parents. Mentioned 14 times in scripture. Now, I think most of you know the backstory. If you don't, here's what happens. Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, has a dream of lean cows and fat cows. And he goes down to Egypt. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But he walks out of his calling, becomes prime minister, and spares Egypt. And Pharaoh loves Joseph, and he makes him prime minister. When Joseph is leading in Egypt, there are 70 Hebrews there. But they begin to multiply more than the Egyptians, and they number in the millions. Scripture then tells us there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and he feared the Hebrews, and he began to enslave them, and they built their treasure cities. And then there was an edict that they would kill all the firstborn males of the Hebrews. Now, the world makes no sense, right? They think they're really smart. Can I ask you this question? If you had a free labor force, predominantly men, why would you kill all the firstborn? You're killing your labor force. But that, that's how cockeyed the world's thinking is. That's how satanic it really is. Now, by God's grace, something miraculous happens. The Hebrew women are delivering before term. The midwives can't even get there. Eight and a half months, boom, they're popping them out, right? They're still multiplying. So the Pharaoh says, well, we'll do this. Well, when the babies are born, we'll wait till they're born, and then we'll throw them into the Nile. But there's this one young couple, it says, they don't fear the king. Amram and Yoshebel. I love this couple. Mentioned 14 times in scripture. You had no idea who they were before you came in here. Because they were ordinary. They were obscure. They were a young couple. And you know why I love them? Because Monica and I were a young couple one time. New in our faith. Starting a faith journey. We had visions and dreams. We saw this day of a church in Delaware County. We saw a functioning family. We saw the ship turning in our own family. Things that we would do. God putting dreams in our hearts. We didn't know anything. We were living in a basement apartment. We began to make choices by faith. Choices against the grain of this world financially and of all the world would esteem. We lived in media. We lived, you know, where Five Points is. We lived in a basement apartment in Five Points and had one car. Literally, my wife would go to Acme, mile away, take a shopping cart all the way home, and then I would get, put it in my car and drive it all the way back when I got home. We made choices to keep her at home, raise our kids. She taught herself a guitar in a basement floor apartment. We had Bible studies. Listen to this. Two-bedroom apartment. We had Bible studies with more people than most people with, like, seven-bedroom homes. I'm being serious. Always had people over. Always had Bible studies. Why? Making decisions by faith. Investing. Now, it all comes full circle. I'll never forget when we signed the mortgage to build this property. Three 
million dollar loan. And you know where that loan office was? Right across from Acme. I'll never forget. Signing all these documents, $3 million, we're going to build this church. I looked out the window and I saw the very Acme my wife would walk through. But those are the choices. And this young couple was making choices. They were defying an empire. This is like North Korea or the former Soviet Union. They're defying a king. That means they would lose their life. These weren't easy choices. Amram, Moses' dad, goes into his wood shop and begins to make an ark for his son, literally a coffin. Putting his newborn son onto the Nile River, never seen him again. Yoshebel sending Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, out that maybe if he's found that, that, you know, she would find a nurse for him. And they're doing all this by faith. And, and here's why I think the scripture bears it out, because, because no one's ordinary. See, God doesn't see a crowd. This is a crowd this morning. God doesn't see crowds. He sees individuals. He sees your choices. God's moved by faith. Remember Jesus, the centurion, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. And God sees and he's moved. And, and the other point I want to make is, is this. No one is a self-made human being. Do you realize someone prayed for you, someone you may not even know? Someone witnessed to you, someone led you to Christ, someone intervened maybe for your job, somewhere along the line. Nobody's self-made. Moses, for all that he accomplished, could have never been the man he was if it wasn't for that hand that built that ark and set him out on the Nile. And faith comes in many forms. And we look at this, and, and here's how you know God's in it. If it were you and me, we think the end of the story was that Moses' mother would get her child back. That was never God's plan. She got him back for a season. Because Pharaoh's daughter draws him out of the Nile. That's his name, Moses, drawn out. It's not a Hebrew name, it's Egyptian. But she needs a nurse, and Moses' mother became that nurse for at least six years. May have been 13 years, may have been six months, but it was at least six years, we think, on average. Can you imagine what she told Moses in those six years? Stories of Abraham, stories of Isaac, stories of Jacob. Pastor Oscar Maru, when we were meeting with him in Kenya, was speaking about how every church and every age and every part of the world has to think of their strengths. And he said, one of our strengths is poverty. He said, we can go to Western countries and start churches, and we don't need $50,000 a year. We don't need to stay in four-star hotels. We're used to poverty. We can sleep on the floor. The other thing he enlightened us to was uh, Arab countries, where they have a lot of wealth through oil, that a lot of their uh, nannies are migrant workers. And a lot of those migrant workers are Christians, possibly telling those small Arab children about Jesus. So here's a mother with only six years pours into her child. And the point is this. Parenting is one of the great callings in life. And, and there is no connect. There's no connect to parenting. I'm going to do everything this way and it all turn out well. That's not the way it works. Samson's parents raised him a Nazarite and he turned out a sensual man and made very bad choices. But it doesn't negate the fact that parenting is one of the highest callings in life. Call to pour in to a human being, and Moses became the man that he was, and I'll show you in a few minutes, by his mother and his father's faith. So remember, someone prayed for you, someone raised you, someone helped you become the person you are. Moses' life began by faith. The second thing we notice is that Moses' life shows us that faith demands action. Now, I've been trying to tell you guys this in the whole series, right? 
that you don't build your faith by reading the Bible. You don't build your faith by praying. You don't build your faith uh, with any spiritual discipline. They're all wonderful. You build your faith by taking a step of faith. You walk out on the limb. You walk out on the water, and then you watch God work, and you say, I get it. And you begin a journey with God. That's how faith builds. That's how faith gets stronger, right? Look at all the verbs with Moses. This is astounding. Begins in verse 24. He refused. He chose. He suffered. He esteemed. He looked. He forsook. He kept. Faith is a verb. Love is a verb. There's action. James, the whole argument is show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. We're not saved by works, but faith works is the idea. Moses, by faith, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected that calling. I've been sharing in the whole series that your life is a sum total of all the choices you've ever made. And this is the greatest choice Moses ever made. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. He, he somehow valued what he could see through the corridor of time by faith greater than anything he could see in Egypt. And here's the reality. Everyone's born into a situation, good or bad. Everyone's born into a faith, good or bad. Some point, we all make a choice. And sometimes the choice isn't delineated by time. Some people choose by their actions. Some people are raised Christians and they just go out into the world and live their life. They have chosen a path. We're all raised one way. We all make a choice later. Moses chose to believe. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God as greater than anything he could see of worth or value in Egypt. And here's what he could see. He could see the pyramids. He could see the treasure cities. He could see the wealth. He, he lived in a palace where everybody was at his beck and call. Egypt was the known superpower of the day. He, he understood the passing pleasure of sin. And by the way, notice that verse you just read, the passing pleasure of sin for a season. Any Christian that tells somebody in the world that sin's not pleasurable for a season is not being scriptural. It is. You know, I always, always think back to this insignificant film with Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand called The Crinkled Ties. And they're having an adulterous affair, and they're laying in bed one night, and one of them says, if adultery is so wrong, why does it feel so good? To which the other person says, that's why they made it a sin. And the truth is, it, it has pleasure. Stolen water is sweet, right? But I've looked at enough faces in 24 years of people who have gone through the agony of defeat, and there's no pleasure. But there's heartache, and destroyed marriages, and financial ruin, and kids that are separated. I've lived through it. I've seen it. But sin is pleasurable for a season. Now, Moses' sin wasn't debauchery. He wasn't sleeping around. He wasn't getting drunk. Moses' pleasure, the passing pleasure of Moses' sin was a successful life, comfortable in Egypt. And yet he rejects all that. It says here, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the treasure in Egypt. That word uh, esteemed means he made an assessment. Transliterated, that's the best word we have. Moses looked at his life and he made an assessment. He saw the wealth of Egypt over here. He saw the poverty of the Hebrews over here. But it came into his heart that he was Hebrew. This identity. 
and he makes this choice, 40 years old. He makes an assessment. Uh, to make an assessment means to put value on something. And he looks and he sees that God has something grand for him beyond the pyramids. Now, John Ortberg writes about something called a shadow mission. And this is dangerous. Shadow mission is closely aligned to the mission God has given you. Uses all your gifts and talents, for, but for something that God really never called you to do. Many Christians find themselves in that place. Too scared to step out of the boat, too scared to step of faith. They wind up walking in a shadow mission. It, it's good, it's okay, but it reeks of comfort, it reeks of success. And they'll never truly walk in all that God had for them. And here's the worst, they'll never see God's action in their life. Moses never settled for a shadow mission. He makes this choice at 40 years old. And this is the third point. Moses looked to the reward. He made this choice at 40, and I don't know anything about women, you know. I always say to my wife, I love her, I don't understand her. I don't know a lot about women. I have three sisters, I have three daughters and a wife. I still don't know a lot about women, but I know a lot about men. Men go squirrely at 40, okay? We call it a midlife crisis. But it's actually highly documented. That's why 40 was so interesting for Moses. Uh, one writer said this, it's important to note that at 40 years of age, men are most vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. It's a time when the male ego needs reassurance. It's a time when security of career is most needed. When a man knows how to look for pleasures outside of a reality. So when men stop living for an illusion that they can do everything, they begin to compare their lives with college mates or people they were raised with. They begin to run out of excuses. They begin to appraise life in harsher terms. The language of the late 40s for men is, I feel trapped, I feel disappointed. Things aren't working out the way I thought they were. My marriage isn't what I thought it'd be. My career isn't what I thought it'd be. My spiritual life isn't what I thought it would be. Poet Ed Seisman said, man past 40, get up nights, look out at city lights, and wonder why life is so long and where in the journey they went wrong. Now, there's a good thing about 40. Reassessment's a wonderful thing. For any guy approaching 40 or over 40, I recommend two books. One, Halftime by Bob Buford, and the other, Mid-Course Correction by Gordon McDonald. Those are two books that will help you navigate your 40s. Moses, at 40, looked to the reward. Stephen said when he became great, when Moses was in his prime, the pinnacle of human greatness, he makes a decision. And he's going to leave the wealth of Egypt. I've made three critical decisions in my life at three critical times. 21 years old, I made a decision to accept Christ and abandon my plans for the future on a college campus. Second decision I made was to forgo a, a career playing basketball in Europe to take a youth position in my church. And then the third was to leave a Fortune 500 company after 12 and a half years. Every decision was difficult. Every decision required seeing that which was unseen. I remember when I left the Boeing company, I'll never forget the day I left. They pull you into this office, they take your badge away, your benefits away. You're stripped of every form of security you ever thought you would have. And you walk out the door. 
for a job that anyone in Delaware County would go for. And I got home to my wife, and I'm like, what if this doesn't work out? And it's so wonderful. She goes, it's a miracle. You just get another job. That's how easy it is. Moses' assessment. What was seen was Egypt. Its wealth, its power, its grandeur, the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh. What was unseen was the kingdom of God with another throne, with justice and equity, every man sitting under his vine and fig tree, a promise of Jerusalem and a Messiah that would come. It was all unseen to Moses. And he makes this grand assessment, and he looks to the reward, and he makes this decision. And the decision, please listen, lands him in the wilderness. Lands him in the wilderness. And you might think, okay, I'm in the wilderness. I made this grand decision. I'll hack it for a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. You think Moses had dark days? He's got a PhD in Egyptology. He's a general. Stephen says he knows all the might and wisdom of Egypt. He's a philosopher. The, the guy is brilliant. And all he hears is the bleeding of sheep. Sheep. That's all he sees every day. Feed sheep, clean sheep, guide sheep. This man is brilliant. You know what we find out about Moses? He had a PhD in everything this world understood, but he needed a BDD. Any of you ever heard of that one? It's called the backside of the desert degree. And some of you are enrolled right now. The backside of the desert degree is a place of stripping. It's a place of isolation. It's a place where all the great men of God have gone. John the Baptist was there. Jesus was there. All the great men of God have gone there. Elijah was there. Paul was there. It's where God strips your natural ability. Now listen, God uses natural ability. Natural ability is wonderful. I mean, only Paul could have written the New Testament, right? Moses, raised in Pharaoh's house, understood complex organizations of leadership. God would use that one day when he would lead three million people in the wilderness. The backside of the desert is the place where you're stripped of believing it's by your own power and might. Now, when it came to Moses' attention that he was Hebrew, <clears throat> you remember what he does? He sees an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian with his bare hands. See, that's the human viewpoint, right? Great, Moses. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. One by one, you're going to bury millions of Egyptians, and the people of Israel will go free. He was still filled with himself. He was still filled with his power, his elite status. He'd get away with things like that. The Hebrew says, who made you a ruler over us? Is this the way you're going to lead us? So Moses is sent to the backside of the desert for 40 years. Now, we think the wilderness is bad, generally, right? Like, who wants to be in the wilderness with scorpions and heat and dust and loneliness? It can actually be a very good place. A place of isolation. I've been there. I was out of ministry for four months. I know what it's like. Stripped. Loneliness. Quiet. Moses begins to adjust to a new lifestyle, a new background, a new language, a new culture. Feels crappy in the beginning. Your body's breaking down. Think about it. It's a prince of Egypt. He had a busy schedule. He had things to do. He was a military genius. You know, he had the clock moving all the time, and now he sits in the desert. Once he decompresses, he, he understands that isolation is the place where you can hear God clearly. And he begins to understand that God's teaching him lessons 
And we know the transformation takes place when he sees the burning bush because now God calls on him for a grander vision. And he said, Moses, now, 400 years ago by, you're going to lead Israel into the promised land. You're going to lead them out of empire. You're going to lead them out of slavery. And you're going to lead them into the fullness that I have for them. You know what this prince of Egypt with a PhD in Egyptology says? I can't even open my mouth. I don't have a thing to say. He's almost saying, God, if you don't do this by your power, I don't have a thing to say. I, everything I've learned, I'm undone. And then that's when God comes in. And then we read all through the Exodus story that Moses becomes the meekest and most humble man in the land. Transformation. That's why the New Testament says you don't put a novice into the ministry. People always say, oh my gosh, if all these superstar athletes and all these rock stars got saved, we'd flood the kingdom. No, we wouldn't. Because the ones that do get saved and jump into the ministry all wind up in shipwreck. Because it's not about talent. It's about understanding it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by God's spirit. God breaks Moses down this type A guy with all this ingenuity. And God says, Moses, it'll be my way in my time, in my power. But you'll let Israel go. And Moses, who leaves go of the human viewpoint and looks at the divine, now will drown the entire army of Pharaoh in one second by the power of God. And God gets the glory and God gets the greatness. All through scripture we read about this wonderful thing question is, are we living by faith? Are we living by sight? Are we leaning on our own understanding? Do we know anything about hearing God's voice and stepping out? Do we know anything about God's power? Do we know anything about God making dreams become reality? This is something we all have to process, something we all have to look at in our lives. It means something different to all of us. For 40 years, Moses was a shepherd. And you would say it's a waste, right? I would say it's a waste. Come on, this guy's got, you got to be kidding. 40 years, this guy could have done X, Y, and Z, right? And yet he just keeps. Why? I think I know why. Because I asked the same question when I was working for Boeing. Twelve and a half years, God, I want to do so many things in the kingdom. Why am I in this place? And one day God gave me the answer. He said, I want you to sit with people older than you and see what they go through. I want you to see how they live. I want you to see the pain that they're going through and how they're raising their kids and all the, the troubles they face. I want you to see the emptiness, the loneliness. I want you to be right in the midst of people that one day you will minister to. And all of a sudden, I got it. When I first got there, I couldn't find a Christian. When I left at my going away party, they were playing Christian music. I had led people to Christ. Other people had come to our department. God knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. He understands the journey. Verse 27 says, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. Moses had an enduring faith. In fact, I think if you could, if you could override one word on Moses' faith, it was endurance. And, and you know what the word endurance means, but beyond what you know it means, it means to really... It's like a tug of war. You just put your feet in the sand and you're not moving, no matter what happens. This is the endurance that Moses had. He was entrenched. He, he knew he was never giving up. He didn't fear the king. Remember that? 
worry before? That came from mom, by the way. Faith of his parents. They didn't fear the king. Moses didn't fear the king. He was raised in, in that house. We're going to get to the final aspect of Moses' faith where he kept the Passover, but let me say this. When you choose to walk the path of looking to the unseen, it can get very lonely. Because very few walk that path, even Christians. It can become a real lonely path. One of the books I recommend is a book on leadership by Ruth Haley Barton called The Soul of Leadership. And I recommend it for two reasons. Number one, she was in the game for a long time. She worked in church ministry. Number two, she traces Moses' life all the way through, so it's a biblical study. But I've actually copied this and put it on my desk, where she talks about the loneliness of leadership and leadership choices and choices to walk by faith. She said leadership involves a very peculiar kind of loneliness. It has to do with seeing things that others do not see, do not see as clearly or perfectly or others have lost sight of. It involves staying faithful to God and to the tasks and decisions that are consistent with the journey. God is leading us on in the face of criticism, disbelief, and failure. Those who began the journey with enthusiasm start to tire of the rigors of the journey. The water is bitter, the food is bad, the danger is unexpected. They start to long for the security and predictability of life they knew before, and they may begin to doubt whether the promised land exists anywhere except in the leader's imagination. They begin to entertain ideas about going back. Uh, quotes Exodus 14, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. Some days you are tempted to agree with them, but you know deep in your soul that if others turn back, you cannot. It is one thing to put yourself in the service of someone else's vision. It's quite another to have a vision, to see a vision yourself and to know the torture of being being that you will go on and must go on regardless of the choices that other people make. The loneliness of leadership is knowing that the buck stops here. There is something that God has given to you, and to renege on it would make you like Jonah hiding out in the bottom of the boat and pretending that you never received a call from God. You could do it, but you wouldn't leave Martha alone. It's a life of faith. Life of faith, going where no one will go. Enduring in strength because God said, this is it. By the way, guys, that's the Christian faith. The day you receive Christ, you drew a line in the sand. No matter who would go, you will follow. Regardless of what you receive in the culture, regardless of suffering, regardless of the horrible things that can happen in life. Finally, it tells us, verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Nine plagues come upon Egypt. Now, I shared with you before, I had this wicked stomach flu where I was convinced that that's all God needs to do, give everybody in Egypt a wicked stomach flu, and they would have walked right out. But God didn't do that. He had ten plagues come upon Egypt. Why? Because he was systematically defeating the gods of Egypt. Ra was the sun god. They had gods of lice and frogs. And one by God, one by one, God's wiping out the gods of Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and Moses said, the angel of death is going to come, and it's going to come on the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Why? Because sin has stained all of us. In the day that you sin, you will surely die, had covered the human race. God tells Moses, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take blood from a lamb. You're going to put it on the doorpost. 
the angel of death when he sees the blood will pass over what was moses looking at by faith well first of all he was beginning to understand there's one way to salvation i'm sure when moses gave that plan out you know you've been in a crowd with people everybody has an opinion and hey moses why don't we do this why don't we do that you sure you heard from god moses said no this is what we're going to do there's one way there's one door without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin moses would later write that god would raise up a prophet like unto himself he saw in the passover a greater deliverer someone greater than himself that would lead people in an exodus out of the empire of sin he saw someone like unto himself someone very similar who would also leave a palace called heaven and come down and identify with the people who were enslaved jesus tabernacled and he walked among them like Moses, Jesus rejected by his own. Give us Barabbas. The difference was Jesus went willingly. Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, because he loved you and loved me. Moses never saw the promise that way. One, because he sinned. Two, because he got angry with the people. But three, because there's a type here. Only Jesus can bring us fully out of slavery into a land where we know peace and joy and god is our god and we are his people moses saw all this through the carter of time by faith and it was beautiful it was wonderful and he kept the passover and he delivered millions into the wilderness and they became the first congregation it's a remarkable story and it's all by faith